The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, mini episode 27.5. I'm Michael. And I'm Steven, I think. <laughs> you think? <laughs> Pretty so, sure. So funny enough, this particular issue did not have an amazing art section, nor did it have a quiz, um, I believe, but it did have a couple other interesting things, and one of them the first thing we're going to talk about here is this top 10 list from October of 1993. So, Stephen, you want to take number 10 then? So number 10 is a book that I remember having, and it had a really neat metallic cover. This is Superman number 82. I have this one also. Artist Dan Jurgens, writer Dan Jurgens. So basically what they say is one of those godforsaken gimmick covers. Was it really a gimmick cover though? Like, would you classify this as a gimmick? Sort of. It had like that metallic-y hologram kind of shine to it. And in this uh, description, they make a big deal that the cover price was three fifty, mm-hmm. And they say, geez, somebody at DC must have just bought a yacht. <laughs> Granted, I just bought a comic today for eight bucks. So yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. And this is the climax of the reign of the Superman storyline. Yeah, but this was a like an oversized story. It was a big book. So three fifty. I mean, I could understand it. It was the end of a huge arc as well. So I don't know if I paid cover price for it. I feel like I got this in kind of a multi-pack, but I definitely had it. Oh, really? I I definitely bought it the day it came out. Like I I wanted it. I needed it. I bought this and the next issue, which is basically like him as Clark Kent on the cover. And it's how they cheat that they like bring Clark Kent back that Superman finds him in the rubble. Yeah. And it's Martian Manhunter is pretending to be Clark Kent and he like pulls him out of the rocks or whatever or something like that. It's something like that. I remember I had that issue as well because I remember that. Is that the one when he's he's got the glasses on the front cover and he's got he's pulling back his shirt and you see the little Superman symbol? Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. Yes. Good issue. Yeah, it was a good issue. So number nine is Ren and Stimpy number one. And it is Stimpy basically sitting in a litter box and Ren yelling at him about something. But the image is so small, it's hard to say what it says. But probably says, you stupid idiot. Most likely, yes, I would I would give it that. And more or less the same, you know, returning to the top 10 list after about six months of absence, the mighty duo, the what does that say? Em- emaciated Chihuahua and the bloated cat Ren and Stimpy. And later on, it's they say the interesting thing to note here is that this and Superman 82 are the only comics in the top 10 list this month that are gimmick covers. Why was this a gimmick cover? I don't know. I feel like I did have this issue or maybe my cousins had it because I did read some Ren and Stimpy comics. I don't know what made it a gimmick issue. Was it, was it like a, a smellow cover? Like a, like a stunk like Ren or something? I was just going to say that. Did it just stink of farts? What was the deal with Ren and Stippy number one? I would probably assume that that might be what it might be. <laughs> sure. So no, number eight on this list is Shadow Man number 16. Uh, Bob Hall was the writer and artist. I'm not familiar with this at all. It's a Valiant comic. 
The only Shadow Man thing I know is that crossover with Aerosmith that we we covered for the podcast a few weeks back on the YouTube series. Beyond that, I wouldn't know a single thing about Shadow Man. I don't know who Dr. Mirage is, who they're they're touting on this cover. Yeah, so it, it says Dr. Mirage, Dr. Mirage, Dr. Mirage. What a great comic book. For those of you who haven't picked up a copy of the Good Doctor's new series, shame on you. <laughs> okay they're really pushing valiant hard still they really are and it's kind of funny because valiant has you know a pretty monumental collapse until it comes back in i think around 2010 as it starts making its comeback with like ninjack and bloodshot and believe it or not faith is the biggest book at valiant right now i have i don't know any of these but so, it's funny because this little blurb ends with Valiant being the sneaky little buggers they are, snuck the first appearance of Dr. Mirage into Shadow Man 16. <laughs> Presto, here's a hot book. Is it a hot book? Is it? To this day, do we know who Dr. Mirage is and do we care? I'm, I'm sure that we're going to get a lot of hate mail from the Valiant people, but I don't uh, know. I don't know. Maybe they left that one in the 90s where it belonged. Who knows? Yeah. So, so number seven is ironically bloodshot number seven by artist don perlin and writer kevin van hook and basically what they're saying is how much do you think it hurts to get run through by a sword quick healer or not that would sting like the dickens Okay. Apparently, I guess Ninjak's debut was in Bloodshot number six, where he appeared out of costume. No, not naked, mind you. (laughs) Just in regular civilian duds. I I don't understand why this is such a big deal. Apparently, as for why Ninjak is so hot right now, the first issue of his all-new monthly series hits stands right now. So basically, they're saying the only reason why this issue of Bloodshot is significant is because ninjacks in it <laughs> well and also they're they're uh, saying that it features the pulse pounding pencils of joe quote the super dave osborne of comics casada but yet he's not listed on the uh, as, as one of the artists on the on the uh, post funny enough it's like no oh, no oh, but i do love super dave so yes i'll give it I to do, them i do like super dave too so number six on this list is prime number two from the artist is Norm Brayfogle, and the writer is G. Jones and L. Straszewski. I did not have this one, uh, but it says every issue of Prime has what many comics lack these days, a great story. If you can pick up any of the early Prime books, uh, which is getting increasingly, increasingly difficult to do, then do so. Out of all the Ultraverse titles, Prime is definitely the cream of the crop. Sure. Sure. I, I just thought he was an overmuscular, angrier Superman. <laughs> He kind of looks like that that golden red He-Man outfit to me. He, he does, right? He does look like golden see. red He-Man. Yeah, it's like a like a bad He-Man Shazam knockoff. I feel like. Sure, I'll give you that one. But the funny thing is, you know, it's saying that the early Prime books are are increasingly difficult to get, but they're promoting number two. So you would assume. There's only two issues, <laughs> right? Like, I don't get it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't know where they were in the prime verse at this point in history, but yeah, it's, it's something. Yeah, it's something, all right. <laughs> but so, this next book, which you're going to cover, is a biggie. Yes. So number five is Vengeance of Bane, number one, by artist Graham Nolan and writer Chuck Dixon. 
I actually didn't have this book until years and years later. You couldn't get it. Like I, every time I went to the store when I was a kid, it was sold out. I could not get a copy of this till much, much later on. But basically it says, the man who finally broke the Batman. That's how DC touted the notorious Bane in the print ads for this now classic one shot. Uh, the jury is out, but you can bet that if Bane gets hungry for revenge, then that will further fuel the heat of this already blazing book. It's, it was a sure. good story. I, I liked it, but I couldn't get it till years and years later. For position number four, we have a book that I did own, Daredevil number 319, artist Graham Nolan, writer Chuck Dixon. It says, another Daredevil book in the top 10. Hey, something crazy is certainly going on with our normally less volatile survey. Usually there's a crop of 10 books out there each month that stand head and shoulders above the rest, making this job an easy one. So are they just downplaying this? I guess so. They sum that up after a long-winded thing by saying, enough belly aching, back to Daredevil. (laughs) <laughs> He's scheduled to get a new costume and undergo many changes, including the return of Electra at the climax of Fall from Grace. This book is the prologue to that story. This issue is another one of those fast evaporating teensy print run gems that seem to spice up the top 10 every so often. I find it very interesting that number five and number four are both by artist Graham Nolan and writer Chuck Dixon. That is interesting. And one is Marvel and one is DC. I find that very interesting. I don't know why. Batman and Daredevil kind of go hand in hand. They are they are essentially, you know, almost the same thing in a lot of ways, which is kind of funny. So number three is a hugely significant story in not only the 90s, but also in Batman is Batman 497. Artist Jim Aparo and writer... Doug, how do you pronounce his last name again? Munch? I think it's Munch or Munch. M-O-E-N-C-H. This is the issue where Batman's life gets a severe adjustment thanks to the big bad Bane. So here's the funny thing when they say severe adjustment. (laughs) If you ever go to a chiropractor, which I've gone my entire life, when they when they crack your back or whatever, they call that an adjustment. And yes. essentially what they're saying is Bane is a chiropractor that just cracked Batman's back. <laughs> Have you ever had a chiropractor as big as Bane? No. Because he's pretty <laughs> muscular on that cover. My chiropractor is a, a four foot eight woman who is is incredibly strong for her size. <laughs> If she she broke Batman's back, that would not have been as dramatic of a storyline. No, it would not have. So so goes on to this chiropractor riff. Bane's initial intention was to kill Batman. But when he saw our hero's weakened condition, he decided instead to do a little chiropractic job on Batman. Bane hoisted our hero up and then down, cracking his spine over his knee and setting the stage for as bats to replace Bruce Wayne as Batman. Expect a certain someone to exact his revenge on Bane in Batman 500. Gee. Ooh. Ooh. Hey, now. I had that. I bought that issue when it was new on stands. I did too. I'm sure, you did. <laughs> and I still have it, which I'm very I, excited about. I think I still have it. I'm pretty sure I do somewhere. Well, continuing with our Batman trend, uh, number two is Sword of Azrael, number one. From Joe Casada and writer Denny O'Neill. Den- Dennis O'Neill or Denny O'Neill? I always say Denny O'Neill. 
I think formerly they always call them Dennis, but you know, everyone lovingly calls him Denny O'Neill. I saw him at a, a convention in Connecticut once, and it was like the Red Sea was parting when he walked through the crowd. Everyone really? was just so excited to see him. Anyway, so it says the entire sort of Azrael four issue miniseries should actually be considered in the smoking hot category, but the first appearance of the new Batman, uh, Jean-Paul Valley, who also happens to be Azrael, in case any of you bozos missed it, <laughs> seems to be the one book in the miniseries that shows absolutely no signs of slowing down. Yeah, this character was a huge deal at the time. It was a huge deal at the time. Love him or hate him. We did cover it in the podcast when this book came out. Mm -hmm. So the funny thing about this thing is Azrael is a character that for a while became kind of a joke. And then he reappeared in the Batman Arkham games in Arkham Knight. Mm -hmm. And then recently he's been making a comeback in the Sean Murphy run of Batman the White Knight. And, and Curse of the White Knight, where mm -hmm. Azrael is back. He sometimes has the red suit. Now he also has a black suit as well. And Todd McFarlane has just come out with a huge line of DC Universe toys, and two of which are Azrael, the red suit and the black suit. Interesting, because I remember there was that toy line in the mid-90s. I think it was called Legends of the Batman or Legends yes. of Batman. And Legends had, of the Dark Knight or something like that, yeah. Legends of the Dark Knight, yes. And it had a really cool Azrael figure that I did have on my shelf. Did you really? Oh, wow. Yes. I didn't have, I, I'd never owned an Azrael figure. I'm debating on getting this black and gold one. It's really cool looking and it has like a huge sword. And I kind of want it just because the sword looks cool. <laughs> So you hate Azrael that much? I don't hate him. I, I, I don't feel one way or the other for him, honestly. Okay. That <laughs> sounds know. like hate. <laughs> It's not hate. There's a lot of other things that I hate. Azrael is not one of them. It's fine. It's fine. It's, you know, to this date, I've never understood out of all the people that Batman could have picked to replace him, why they would choose a, a relative stranger as opposed to Dick Grayson or whomever. Like, you know, there's a whole line of people that they could have used to be Batman. But I guess they did it for just the... We, we want to get a psycho in there so that when Batman comes back, to take him down will be even bigger of a deal, I guess. But whatever. Well, it, it, didn't, it, it eventually went to Dick Grayson because I do have that issue. So it went to Dick Grayson briefly in the 90s. Yes. And, and then after Final Crisis, when Batman theoretically died, mm -hmm. when, when he killed Darkseid, he shot him with a god bullet in Final Crisis and, and killed Darkseid. As one does. And Darkseid blasted him with the Omega Beams, but instead of killing him, sent his essence or his mind, like, dispersed through time. And it came down to Booster Gold, Rip Hunter, Superman, and I think the Flash to go back and re-piece his mind together, bring him back to life. And, and that's when, uh, that was the Grant Morrison run, right, of uh, Batman and Robin, when Damian Wayne was Robin and Dick Grayson... Yeah, was Batman. Batman. Yeah, I, I read that when that was new. I read the first handful of issues. It's fine. It's not not my favorite run, but it's it's fine. It's okay. It made me dislike Damien less. <laughs> okay, that's good. I, I felt like it was one of those stories that was cool in theory. I like the idea of a bright, chipper Batman mm -hmm. and a dark, disturbed Robin. The the story before that, which was Battle for the Cowl, was much mm -hmm. better because it was like Dick and Tim and Jason and Damien kind of battling to see who's going to be the next Batman. That was pretty cool. That was a fun story. 
And I wish they would have done more with that, but whatever. That's ancient history now. But also, let's moving on to our number one book of the month, which is Daredevil 320 by artist Scott McDaniel and writer DJ Chichester. I don't have this book. I don't know this book at all. I'm assuming based on the cover, it feels like maybe, is that a lecture that's coming back or what? Let's see what it says. Yikes. A Marvel book in the numero uno spot? They really didn't like Marvel, huh? We actually (laughs) have to delve way back to issue 11 to dig up the last time a book from the Big M was King of the Hill. That book was Uncanny X-Men 201 for all you information freaks out there of all their titles you ask why would daredevil be the one to lead marvel back to ichiban then yeah, that's that's that number right. that's number one in japanese for all you linguists out there okay great the current fall from grace storyline in daredevil will culminate in many exciting changes for old hornhead including an all-new costume. Since this book is highly desirable, disappearing from store shelves on the first day of release and sports a minuscule print run, those wacky laws of supply and demand have quickly pushed this profile and price into the upper echelon of back-issue buys. But it does not say what this book is about. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean... I wonder if this one actually ever went up in price. I don't know. I'm kind of curious now. I'm going to Google it. Let's see. Daredevil 320. Ooh, guess what? It's a whopping $5 on eBay right now. <laughs> okay, so no. So big deal. All. So that low print one, oh, it's ramping it up then, but it's a dud <laughs> now. Fantastic. So, okay. And that is our top 10 books of December of 93. Time for the annual Halloween costume contest. Yep, second time around, all dressed up with no place to go. There are a lot of entries this time around, so let's get into them. First off, we have uh, Nadim Kasamali, age 8, from Carbondale, Illinois, who is dressed as Spider-Man, and it's kind of more made up out of what I guess you would call a sweatsuit, and so it's kind of interesting to see. It's almost a precursor to the Ben Riley Scarlet Spider look that he's got a black piece of string in his hand that I think is supposed to be a web, but it kind of looks like he's holding a mic cord with a microphone just dangling out of there. Next up is a guy named Kevin Clark, age 35, from the Bronx, New York, and they just describe him as Leonard Nimoy's stunt double. Because, yeah, he's Mr. Spock, but he's an African-American Mr. Spock, which is a pretty cool look. Next, we have Zach Turflinger of La Mirada, California, dressed up as Iron Fist. And I gotta tell you, he looks way better 
than the Netflix Iron Fist. I mean, it is form-fitting green and yellow. He's got the mask. He even drew the tattoo on his chest. Unfortunately, his knee is raised up, you know, in a position ready to kick. So you actually can't see the awesome work he must have done on that dragon chest tattoo. Next up is Kane Bat. Hey, how fortuitous, but that's two T's. He is six months old from Huntsville, Alabama, and he is in a homemade Batman costume. And the quote is, Batman's afraid of Bane? Man, what a baby. <laughs> All right, now this next one is pretty awesome. This is Kyle Wagner and Jason Terrell of Olive Branch, Mississippi. And one of them is dressed as basically a really cool, almost cyberpunk version of Dr. Octopus. Now, I don't know if this is something that had already happened in 1993, but I mean, it is a really cool look. He's got like a white lab coat. He's got boots, but they're really high. He's got sunglasses on. He's got long floppy hair going to one side and the arms I don't know what they're made out of but they do look really cool and pretty poseable but what he's doing is he's actually strangling some other guy who's holding a knife and has an anarchy shirt with camouflage pants on and that guy's hair again he's got kind of a shaved side of his head and then long hair flopping down I mean it's super super 90s because it's pretty awesome oh now here's my favorite Rob Rendon age 17 of Houston Texas in a fantastic spider Spider-Man 2099 outfit. I mean, it is spot on for this time. This is some very high quality cosplay for this era. I wish I would have thought to bug my mom to make me a costume back in the day, but it wouldn't have looked that good. Uh, next is Lorraine Manis, age 18 of Australia. And she is dressed as Storm. And again, I feel like you didn't see very many Storm costumes back in the day, but it's a great one. It's more the silver look with the silver cape that would kind of go to the wrists. And she's got them all fanned out. It's pretty awesome. Uh, next is a kid named Jamie Casamali, age 11, of Carbondale, Illinois. So yes, he must have been the brother of Nadim Casamali, who was dressed as Spider-Man at the beginning. Now, he is a little bit more rotund, but he is dressed as Wolverine. Okay. Luckily, they didn't poke fun at his weight. Wizard just says, as their joke quote, I'm the best there is at what I do. Now, could somebody tell me what I'm supposed to do? So, yeah, but his, uh, it's kind of funny because I don't know what his claws are made out of, but they're all kind of bent out of shape. So it looks like they were not the sturdiest thing ever. Maybe made out of tinfoil, but speaking of tinfoil, Mark Moss, age 24 of Dubuque, Iowa, is dressed as the Silver Surfer, and he's literally just covered himself in what appears to be tinfoil or possibly like some of that silver tape you put on ducts that is not the regular duct tape but it's more shiny i don't know what it's called i'm not a contractor but anyway it's it's pretty amazing i mean it's what you would expect a silver surfer the closest you could get at this time and it says here their quote is he'll cook more evenly if you stick a nail through him obviously referring to the fact that he looks like the big potato surfer next is a guy dressed dressed up as the Predator. It's a costume by Dan Spicer of Spring Lake, Michigan. And then he's standing near some trees, though, you know, because the Predator likes to do his camouflage. And he says, oh man, do you think this is Poison Ivy? Next up is another uh, more rotund comics fan. This is 100% what I would have looked like if I had tried to get my mom to make me a Tim Drake Robin costume in this era. And unfortunately, Wizard's a little more cruel. They say, no wonder Azrael doesn't want 
following him around. But this was Eric Martinson, age 12, of Valrico, Florida. Now, Eric has actually contacted us on social media. We've posted a few of these photos before, and he said this was his 15 minutes of fame. So, nice work, Eric. I think it's an awesome costume. And like I say, I could totally relate. Now, next up is a guy named Paul Rogus, age 33, of Burbank, California, who submitted not one photo, but four photos of different costumes. And they mentioned this guy has way too much free time on his hands. But because Paul went all out and had so many cool costumes, in addition to the regular prizes, he swings, flies, and walks away with a gold Tarak number one signed by Bart Sears. So there's a really cool black costume Spider-Man. Then there is a Hobgoblin, which looks like, you know, Sam Raimi, could you not have done this style of look in the movie instead of the Power Rangers uniform? Then we have a classic Batman costume that really looks a lot like the black and white serial version. You know, the ears are a little floppy, you know, it's just not a sculpted rubber that we expect. And then finally, there is a Daredevil costume, uh, and it looks like maybe he did have horns, but the angle you can't see, so it just looks like a flat red hood. And that one, I think Steven Sapelis would prefer that, even over the look that we got in the trial of the Incredible Hulk, but it at the same time looks kind of ridiculous. You see why Ben Affleck was outfitted in a leather outfit for his movie. Uh, next, we have Michael Giovanni of Bridgevian, Illinois, and he is dressed as the Joker from the Batman 89 film when he was in the museum with Vicky Vale because he's got that big floppy painter's hat on and he says have you ever danced with the devil while wearing Pond's fade cream but it's a pretty good look he's even got an actual flower on his lapel you know that would squirt the acid uh, next we have a stormtrooper outfit from Danny Hansen of Fairfield California if all the stormtroopers look like this the rebels wouldn't have had to suffer through three movies yeah it does look like it's made mostly out of cardboard, but it's actually, you know, pretty good for a homemade outfit of that era. Now, there is Piers Zorowski from Chicago, Illinois, that they remind us last year he won first prize by dressing as Nightcrawler, but this time around, he is dressed as Iron Man. And I gotta say, this outfit's pretty cool for a kid's costume. His parents did a great job. But what's funny is it looks like underneath him, because he's like in front of a grate, and then there is some sort of like dish that looks like it was for feeding the cat. Yeah. <laughs> So it's just, they didn't pick the best spot for the picture. Next, we have a guy named Charlie Balvin, age 13, from Boca Raton, Florida. And he has a Venom costume, which again, just looks like a black sweatsuit. But it's got a pretty good insignia on it. But it's the mask that is hilarious. Because obviously, for visibility's sake, he had to cut holes in it. So you have the big white eye design. But then these two little holes inside of it. So it just looks like a weird cartoon character version of Venom. And Wizard's quote is, yo, we got Venom in the house because he's raising his arm much like the Arsenio Hall fans uh, here we go we got Curtis Amlog of Didato Guam he is dressed as Ray not the Ray but Ray from Valiant Comics he's got the sword he's got the red dot painted on his chest his whole body is whited out man they've got intense with that costume for this kid now we have a spawn outfit and you know what? They have no criticism. Chris Edwards, age 20 of Hamilton Square, New Jersey, all they say is, hell of a good costume. And it is. It looks like something about as good as the one that they had walking around conventions. Now, also, speaking of which, there's a gal dressed up in a Wonder Woman costume, and they just say, Linda Carter would be proud. And it's true. I mean, Melissa Koopman, uh, with a costume by Luciano Burnaby of British Columbia, she is right on target with this Wonder Woman costume. And it's interesting, behind her, 
there is like a sketch, a black and white sketch of Rogue. So it's kind of an interesting choice there. Now the next one here from Dan Weber of Cumberland, Michigan. It is Strife. Yes, you know, that cable clone from X-Force who was causing all that trouble. It is 100% made entirely out of cardboard that is spray painted silver with some football pads and a cape. And he looks so depressed in this picture. I don't know if he just didn't want to participate in this costume, but the quote is, Hello, I'm Strife, evil mutant and would-be world conqueror. I'm here to pick up Donna for the prom. <laughs> That's exactly what it looks like, just a dorky teen who dressed up. All right, now we are down to it. Our first, second, and third prize winners. Third prize winner, I couldn't be happier about this. Ut! Like costume is good. Yes, because Jeffrey Jones, age 23 of Houston, Texas, created the Flaming Carrot. Yes, Bob Burden's Flaming Carrot. I am a big fan, and this is a fantastic look. I mean, honestly, it's pretty easy when all you have to do is put on some slacks, a button-down shirt, and flippers on your feet. But creating the carrot, that is the trick, and he did a great job. Now, second prize goes to Amy Hayes, age 17, of Shelton, Connecticut, who is Catwoman, but more specifically the Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman from Batman Returns. And this is where you get into a little bit of Remember, she's 17, and Wizard says, Hamana, 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 fantastic costume! So yeah, I don't know if you say Hamana, Hamana, Hamana about a high schooler. Bad choice, Wizard. And finally, we have the first prize winner, Usagi Ujimbo. That's right, Stan Sakai would be proud. Uh, they say, now this is One Dangerous Bunny by Lonnie Waltz of Independence, Missouri. I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, it's 100% spot on. Again, you would expect to see this at a convention at the official booth where Stan Sakai was there signing his comics because it looks great. And uh, there you have it, man. This feels like the real first full-fledged costume contest. You gotta love Love it. Something I look forward to every year. Can't wait until the next one comes around. Now, what do you have to say, Stephen? Homemade heroes. Homemade heroes. Homemade heroes. Homemade heroes. So the first picture we see is of the diabolical super scroll. Uh, it's from Chance of El Monte, California, and he was made with a Toy Biz Thor body. I had that toy. A Toy Biz Green Goblin head. I also had that toy. And a Toy Biz Thing arm. I still have that toy. Uh, it's really cool. I'm a big fan of the Fantastic Four and the Scrolls. Uh, it's a really neat figure. It's, it's pretty accurate. Next, we have two figures in one photo. It's Doctor Strange and Adam Warlock. This was made by Mark R. Keach of Carmichael, California. Doctor Strange used to be a Mego Shazam, and Warlock was a Mego Punch doll from Chips. Punch was Eric Estrada, right? I guess you can do a lot with an Eric Estrada toy, we found out through this. But the winner of the Figure of the Month contest is a Black Vulcan figure from those Super Friends cartoon days, for those of you who don't know. It's from Eric Gonzalez of Odessa, Florida. It used to be a Superpowers Flash. Great job, Eric. Now, I feel like the Superpowers Flash was the most versatile figure that you saw in these early homemade heroes. I feel like every toy or almost every uh, magazine you see someone using a Superpowers Flash for some other purpose. I have that toy, and it, you can pretty much make anything out of it. I think there was a Blue Beetle in one of the early uh, issues of Wizard. It's really cool. 
Oh, you better believe it's time for the Hunk and Babe of the Month. I'm too sexy for my shirt. Too sexy for my shirt. So sexy it hurts. And I'm too sexy for Milan. Too sexy for Milan. New York and Japan. This month's babe is Glory. Yes, a Rob Liefeld creation. Kind of hard to believe she's pushing about 70, huh? I tell you, those Amazons age really well. Heck, her being 70 is a plus. You know what they say, the older the woman, the more her experience. She'll need that experience too, because if she's thought fighting the Nazis in World War II was tough, wait until she tries to fight me off. As far as her having a crush on the Super Patriot, no problem. That guy's just a big hunk of walking Lego now, and she needs a real man, namely me. Okay. Now here's something special that we have for you going forward on Hunk and Babe of the Month. We decided that we would bring in a, a female perspective on all this sexism. So we are lucky enough to have Steven's wife, Annie Flowers, will be providing the Hunk of the Month descriptions for you. So take it away, Annie. And now it's time for the Hunk of the Month, Adam Warlock. Those guys at the Hive weren't kidding around when they created Adam here to be the perfect male. Wow. The physique. Those eyes. That all-over tan. This boy is H-O-T. To top it all off, that gorgeous gem in his forehead is to die for. It may be a little tricky getting it off of him and onto a wedding band, though. I don't know. This guy doesn't look like marriage material. The only bad thing is that he's prone to be a little bossy at times. But with a bod like that, I'm willing to follow his every command. I'm looking at him. He looks pretty good. He's muscular. A little overly muscular. But yeah, pretty hot. Brooding. Looks like a big tough Roman in a Speedo. Hmm, I don't know if that would fly anymore. This guy seems like he has a lot of issues. And I don't really know who this guy is, but my husband told me he was teased at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy 2, so I'm guessing he's a pretty important guy. You can find Annie Flowers on the Audio Fanfic Podcast on Twitter at Audio Fanfic Pod. If you want to hear her read mostly X-Files fanfiction, now back to you, Michael. So the what I'm reading this month, I've been trying to kind of dovetail away from Marvel and DC lately because I've kind of been disappointed about their stories, but one of the books that I actually really like and I have been buying is the Tom King Clay Man Batman and Catwoman. It's only number two of a 12-issue run, and this is supposed to be the ending to his 85-issue run of Batman Rebirth Saga. At the end of that, Batman and Catwoman got married. And it's theorized that she's pregnant. Mm. And essentially what we find in this book is, yes, she did have a child, which ultimately becomes Helena Wayne. For those of you Earth 2 fans, that is the huntress of Earth 2, the daughter of Batman and Catwoman. And she is supposed to rise to become the next Batman in the story. But the very interesting thing about this, which is actually kind of significant for us, this is the first time that very popular character is going to come back. Mm. And we'll be covering that character in 
one of our movie episodes, which is Mask of the Phantasm. And the Phantasm oh. is coming back in this book. Okay. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, and, and you can, on the cover of this issue too, in the way, way back is the Phantasm. Oh, no way. Yeah. That's really neat. I'll have to check that out. And so she is hunting Batman and Catwoman for some reason. Mm. So. Spoiler alert, by the way, yeah. Mask of the Phantasm. Yeah. Oops. When you say she. <laughs> oh, 30 years later. <laughs> it's not Stacy Keach. It's not. <laughs> so that was our, what I'm reading this month. We're going to throw it over to Adam now to the 2099 hotline. Ooh. Ooh, interesting. Greetings, future geeks. Adam calling in on the 2099 Hotline. This is the segment where I take you through Marvel's world of tomorrow. You know, over the last year, we have witnessed the birth of the 2099 universe and more recently been teasing the first ever 2099 crossover event, Fall of the Hammer. And now the time has come to experience the thunder! And this five-part story is ready to go. I should also mention that it featured five interlocking covers that added some extra fun to the event itself. Now, just as a reminder, in the 2099 universe, I know some of you say 2099, Thor is worshipped as an actual deity. There's a church of Thor whose followers are called Thorites, and they have all been mentioning his return since these books launched. Also, a bad guy named Avatar, with metallic golden eyes that look like surgically implanted sunglasses, has been up to no good pulling the strings on a floating city called Valhalla, which he's using to manipulate the beliefs of the populace, and also part of his plan to kill the new batch of heroes who are fighting back and thwarting whatever his master plan is as yet unrevealed. So part one called The Hammer Strikes is featured in Spider-Man 2099 number 16, picking up directly from issue 15 where the final panels revealed Thor and Heimdall declaring their return as prophesied for generations. So what's the first thing a god does for his second coming? Hit on Spider-Man's girlfriend Dana, of course. Miguel steps in to halt the supposed Asgardian's advances and is flung across the city for his trouble, as Thor rejects Dana for being ungrateful of his interest in her. Meanwhile, changing into his Spidey gear, Miguel returns and attacks those Norse naughty makers who can control the trajectory of their weapons, a sword and a hammer, which he dodges but actually manages to grab hold of the sword and makes Thor bleed. So Thor manhandles Miguel, calling him quote, merely one who aggrandized himself with our name and power, and stating, I have only slain a handful of mortals in my time, formidable enemies to be sure, you are not worthy to be numbered among them. After which, Thor commands Mjolnir to push Spider-Man to what he calls, quote, old haunts, a place of humiliation, and he is slammed into the pavement only to find a gun shoved in his face by Punisher 2099 as the issue ends. Now, part two of the crossover titled Horns of a Dilemma, yikes, that's a, that's a mouthful, is featured in Ravage 2099 number 15, where Ravage goes into literal beast mode when threatened by Bloodhawk of X-Men 2099 
99, who then quickly says, It's a tempting thought, but I don't think I'm gonna find Jordan Boone by fighting. At which point, Ravage, Bloodhawk, Crystalline, and Mean Streak all agree to head to Valhalla, where Ravage has an appointment with Doom to destroy the environmentally unfriendly long-wave generators that move the floating city. After taking down a few guards, the X-Men have a showdown with the new Heimdall, while Ravage faces off against a new Gila, who he realizes is his old girlfriend Tiana. He refuses to fight her, and his defiant passiveness in the face of her final deadly strike wakes Tiana from the mental programming they embrace, but distraught by her weakness in seeking out power from a source of evil, she flies off, never to be seen again in this story. Part 3, titled Thunderstrike, that's a good one, is from X-Men 2099 number 5, which picks up on the X-Men's battle with Heimdall, who proves to be faster than Mean Streak, smarter than Bloodhawk, and more clever than Crystalline, who is then rescued by Ravage swinging in Errol Flynn style on a line. I don't think Crystalline was asking for his help. Anyway, we then cut to Thor looking menacingly down on a crowd of Thorites who have gathered and are being offered a ride up to the Valhalla city for a thousand bucks by an opportunistic hover platform driver. Skullfire of X-Men blasts his way through the crowd and gets a free ride for his display of power, needing to join his comrades in the fight. But the platform engine fails and the driver bails with the only parachute, but then a mysterious hand grabs Skullfire to save him before he plummets to his death, I cannot recall if they ever revealed who actually saved him. I was very confused, but this has been over the X-Men 2099 comics that we covered recently. He flies out a lot of windows, this Skullfire guy, always falling to his death, always needing to be saved. Next, we have a single page of Avatar looking over the mayhem, very pleased that the gods he has created are meant to kill this new crop of heroes. So now we know 100% they are not on the up and up. Back at the battle with Heimdall, Crystalline is revealed to be a Thorite with a Molnir pendant around her neck, the way many Christians wear a cross. But she rejects Heimdall's attempt to convince her that he is the real deal. Meanwhile, Mean Streak has finally found his old friend Jordan Boone, who has been transformed into Loki. But he claims he outsmarted Avatar and was able to program it so he retained his own identity. Now he will use this power however he wants. But then Thor shows up and is none too pleased with these invaders. Part 4 then picks up in Doom 2099 number 14 with the title The Anvil or The Hammer. And as Thor raises his hammer to strike the X-Men, Doom emerges from the shadows at the same moment to challenge this thunder god. Using brains over brawn, Doom manages to interrupt the flow of energy that is going into Mjolnir, which creates an intense feedback explosion that sends Doom and Thor flying down to earth like a fiery meteor, but causes the city then to start falling. Loki reveals to Mean Streak that he provided the info to Doom and Ravage that led them to make their plan to sabotage Valhalla, but it was always meant by Alchemex to fall anyway and destroy the masses below. He then turns into a wolf and runs off. Because that's something Loki does? Probably more in the mythology than the comics. We then see that Doom survived by becoming immaterial before he hit the ground, but Thor is out for the count and retrieved by some Alchemex technicians, I guess? It awakens in a lab where he sees a woman in a chamber who it is revealed by Avatar was meant to be the new Sif, 
but she died in the process of being empowered with godlike abilities. After some backtalk, Avatar turns off Thor's power, returning him to the human form of a Thorite priest, Cecil McAdam. Humbled, McAdam is transformed to his godly form again and takes off to defend Valhalla as Doom then emerges to confront Avatar, who calls out all of Doom's past life as a dictator and a tyrant, but reminds him he seems to have a more heroic attitude now and must save the soon-to-be-crushed citizens instead of exacting justice on the mastermind. Spider-Man and Punisher 2099 show up on a hover bike, which they have been tooling around on the last few issues, basically just killing time, to face Loki, who then flies off in the form of a raven. This guy, he doesn't stick around for long and doesn't seem to like that human form. Anyway, then all the people on Valhalla are jumping onto these lifeboat pods to get to safety, and then the X-Men board one of their own for some reason and just take off like cowards. In the final pages, the other players meet up as Punisher, Spider-Man, Doom, and Ravage agree they are going to work together to find a way to keep Valhalla, I guess that's this hammer we've been talking about, from falling. The conclusion in part 5 titled All for One opens with a melee against genetically altered mutant soldiers called Berserkers, after which Doom gives everybody their task. Doom and Ravage agree to work in tandem to reactivate the engines using some future techno jargon, while Punisher, with Spider-Man along for the ride, is tasked with pummeling all the remaining imposter gods with his arsenal to the death if necessary, with Ravage stating disbelief, quote, you're a one-man army. A weird thing happens though that hasn't been seen in any previous issue as Punisher starts mentally talking to his alter ego Jake Gallows as a separate person. Like he's battling his own conscience talking about having been raised Thorite how his brother was named Balder and it seems to be messing with his mind as he freezes up. Luckily Spider-Man is there to smack Punisher around until he gets his head back in the game. Using a plasma gas cannon that would make Cable proud, he incinerates Heimdall and Balder. Meanwhile, Doom and Ravage manage to get the engines back online, but then Thor busts in demanding the hammer must fall and bashes the control panel, causing the city to plummet again. But then Punisher just hangs on to Mjolnir as Thor tries to fly away and wresting the not quite enchanted mallet from Thor's grip, throws it into the engine and it just somehow reactivates the floating city of Valhalla and Thor is seemingly killed in an explosion that results from that. I have to say this ending was super messy and not well laid out. I had a really hard time following this very, very abrupt wrap up. On the very last page, Avatar shows up in hologram form to taunt the heroes saying, I could do anything to anyone anytime I wish. To which Punisher responds, If you're so powerful, why don't you take us out in the first place? Why bother with Valhalla and the Azir? The name for the group of the Norse gods, I assume. I just didn't want to try to say that word over and over again throughout this review. <laughs> After more grandstanding, Avatar claims, Next battle in the war, you all die. Starting with you, Punisher. Then the last panel is a random, like, projected image of Punisher being fried in his own molecular disintegrator by Jigsaw 2099, and this crossover is at an end. Yeah, so it was very cool to see the crew of future heroes band together to fight the evil Asgardian pretenders, with only Loki, Jordan Boone, and Gila Tiana surviving to return another day. But I have some questions, like why did the X-Men just bail in a lifeboat, never to be seen again? That was pretty lame. Why did Ravage and Doom have to work so hard together to get the engines back online, when all Punisher had to do was 
throw a magic hammer up into the sky and it saved the day. And how useless was Spider-Man? All he did this entire story was punch a few people and make snarky quips. They completely underutilized their most popular character. I mean, he is a scientist. He's a smart dude. He deals in genetics. It feels like he really could have done something to deactivate all the gods. But no, they just had to get incinerated by Punisher. I can't say necessarily it's any worse than most comic book crossovers of this time, but I guess I wanted something bigger from the ending, like what if the real Thor returned, or the city actually fell, and then the characters had to deal with the fallout, huh? In their own titles. You know, instead we got some cackling villain claiming this was all part of the plan. You know, it just doesn't work for me. That being said, I think the editorial staff did a good job in the months leading up to the event, planting the seeds, you know, enough to justify everyone's involvement in uniting for the adventure. So, yeah, fall the hammer, it fell below my expectations, but I'm glad they at least took a swing. So what's next after such an epic storyline? Well, I'll be taking a break from the 2099 books, and next time around, I'm gonna review the forgotten DC Comics event Bloodlines that was going on in the middle of the Reign of the Superman and Nightfall storylines. Why is this event never spoken of? Why did Wizard not even mention it outside of a one-page ad and a single issue? Are the trading cards any good? I'll be diving into the blood-soaked alien madness to give you my take in mini-episode 28.5, so stay tuned. Now, back to you, Michael. And now let's hop into My Kind of Hero. In this issue, we have three new heroes to talk about. The first one is a character by the name of Flint Locke. And this is created by Kane Barlace from the Gold Coast of Australia. Wow, pretty cool. I think it's Queensland, Australia, which is written as QLD. I'm assuming that's Queensland. So the character's secret identity is that of John Stables. And the current occupation of Flintlock is chronological nomad. I don't know what that means. Hopefully it'll explain in the description. Place of birth, Cornwall, England. Legal status, extensive criminal record in different countries throughout time. I guess that's why he's a chronological nomad. Okay. Cool. Marital status is unknown. Base of operations is anywhere at any time. Height, four foot six. Weight, 110 pounds. Eye color is brown. Hair color is brown. Powers. Flintlock has the ability to travel through time at will. He is also incredibly nimble and a crack shot with his legendary brown Bess musket. Looks like it says brown eyes. <laughs> Go figure. So, Flintlock's origin during the English Industrial Revolution in 1788. I feel like uh, Kane Barlace is probably like taking a world history course when he wrote this character. Um, but whatever. John Stables was convicted of petty larceny and given a life sentence of hard labor in the prison colony known as Australia. 
While in Australia, Stables tried to escape only to stumble across an alien crash site. Ooh. The stranded aliens befriended Stables and taught him the art of manipulating the fabric of time and the ability to travel through it. Since then, Stables took up the name Flint Locke and has continued his small-time criminal activities throughout time. So, to describe what Flintlock kind of looks like, just picture the Big Lebowski with mus- muscles and could almost be considered as like rock hands of some sort or some sort of like concrete hands. He's got these like pink bubbles around him and these giant like metal feet and legs and some sort of like bow staff behind him. He wears a pair of sunglasses and has a beard and appears like he's wearing a robe, hence the Big Lebowski reference, because that's kind of what it looks like. The next character we have is the Aborigine. Ooh, the Aborigine. Interesting. This is by creator Johnny J. Mendoza, age 19, from Whittier, California. The secret identity of the Aborigine is Quillez. Quillez. Okay. Q-U-I-L-L-E-Z. Sure. Current occupation, criminal hunter. Ooh. Legal status, criminal record in Mexico. Marital status, widowed. Base of operations, mobile, but spends most of his time in North and South America. Height, six foot one. Weight, 210 pounds. Powers, the Aborigine carries a staff that allows him to change his body to match his environment, much like a chameleon. He is also immortal, and unless the staff is taken from his person or is destroyed, killing him is next to impossible. A lot of these people make characters that are impossible to kill, and I'm like, they need some sort of vulnerability of some sort in order to make them more believable, I feel like, or or real, or relatable. But when they are essentially impossible to kill it takes it takes a little bit out of it for me but whatever this is somebody else's creation so more power to him much more creative than i could be in that sense origin long before the great flood there lived a people that lived on an uncharted isolated island on this island there were two seeds from the forbidden fruits of eden one seed from the legendary tree of life and the other from the tree of knowledge. These islanders placed these seeds in a staff to keep them out of any outsider's hands. Many years later, explorers from the outside world arrived on the island, killing all the inhabitants and plundering the land. Not long after the massacre, an islander who had traveled abroad returning home to find his home destroyed and his family and people murdered. This man, named Quilez, took the staff containing the mystic seeds and took up the name the Aborigine. Now, armed with the mystic staff and a burning hate fueled by rage, the Aborigine crosses the globe in search of those who destroyed his people. So, the picture is of a character who's more or less sort of red, wearing almost like a loincloth with some sort of like i guess you would call it like in a way like egyptian drawings of of like a a people and and someone holding the staff the staff itself is this almost like 
spear with a with an eye on the bottom and a face on the top which i would assume is where the seeds are stored and some sort of like wire wrapping around it the aborigine himself has no known face that i can tell he's just wearing like a red mask in a way it's interesting a very cool drawing he's in essence sort of like preparing something the interesting thing about this picture is the staff is in some sort of like pool of water and it appears as if there is blood coming out from the bottom of the staff the third and final my kind of hero is a character known as Oblivion. Creator Bill McAvoy, age 21, from Palmdale, California. Secret identity is unknown. Current occupation, adventurer and mercenary. Legal status, harbored in the United States government. Okay. Marital status, unknown. Base of operations, Washington, D.C. Height, 6'5", weight, 275 eyes red hair blonde powers oblivion possesses the ability to drain an opponent's life energy and add it to his own strength and stamina he also possesses ultra dense skin making him nearly invulnerable to bodily harm his strength and dexterity far surpass that of the average human as well his origin not much is known about the origin of Oblivion. What is known is that the United States government found him in an Arctic exploration, perfectly preserved in a block of ice. Sort of like reverse evil Captain America, <laughs> I guess you could say. This character is pretty, pretty scary when I get to describing him. When the government discovered Oblivion's unique abilities, it decided to use those powers as best they could and how and now uses him as a one-man hit squad okay so it is sort of evil captain america in a way so this character is terrifying looking extremely well drawn with well-defined muscles skin is kind of uh, an orange peach pigment he's wearing a red torn up sleeveless shirt a large utility belt with a um big metal clasp in the middle. The hair is kind of wild and untamed and unkempt, kind of like a saber tooth in a way. Giant fanged teeth and and uh, like almost like a, a lizard or a reptile of some sort. It's pretty scary. It's a, it's a pretty good looking drawing. It's, a, it's an intense kind of a character that I would wonder how the government would use this and not terrorize people and terrify them as well. But it's a very cool drawing. All three of these are very unique, and each one is different in their own way, which I really enjoy. And that is my kind of hero. And that's our mini-episode for Wizard Magazine issue 27. As always, don't forget to check out us on social media. You can follow us on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics. You should get our YouTube series by searching Wizards Comics in YouTube. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Our tons of cool videos. We've got Action Figure Fury, Long Box Roulette, Gimmicks Grab Bag, and so much more. And if you want to get even more exclusive content, you can now sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com. Search for 
Wizards Podcast or Wizards Comics and sign up and get some really cool inside stuff. We just recently did a Patreon special event. We did a meet and greet where we had a bunch of our Patreons come on, had a great conversation, talked about nerdy stuff, showed off collectibles and toys and you name it. It was really fun. It's a really cool place to engage with us in a different way and really have a lot of fun. You can also get some cool merch from our T Public store. We're out there. We're all over the place, guys. You can check us out and support the show and if you get a shirt or you sign up for patreon let us know we'll shout you out on our social media but as always don't forget to keep your books bagged and boarded This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.